I like listening to podcasts by non-Christians and especially atheists, uh, particularly when they're talking about Christianity. It's interesting to hear what outsiders think of Christians. And there's a general perception that Christians are hypocritical and judgmental and have an air of superiority. And that sense was confirmed for a lot of people with the release of Amazon's documentary called Shiny Happy People, where that hypocrisy and judgmentalism was exposed. And the harm of that hypocrisy and judgmentalism was shown in really devastating ways. So if we look broadly at our culture, I think most non-Christians and a lot of Christians sense that there's a problem of hypocrisy and judgmentalism in Christianity. And if you're like me, if you examine the way that you've lived, you might realize that you also have a problem of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. So is there any hope? Is there hope for Christianity to deal with the problems of judgmentalism and hypocrisy? And is there hope for you and me to eradicate judgmentalism and hypocrisy from our own lives? Well, I think there is. And that's what I want to talk about in this sermon, drawing from Romans chapter two that was just read. Now I want us to consider what the problem really is. I want to tell you why you can't ignore this problem. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. I want to show you what the solution to the problem is. And then I want to talk about how we can access that solution. All right, so let's start by talking about the problem with judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Is it actually a problem? Yes, it is. So what are they? Judgmentalism is associated with the condemnation of a person based on their acceptance or rejection of a certain belief or practice or way of life. So a judgmental person thinks that they have the right to correct others and that their correction is also right. So judgmental people look out and they think they have the right to judge other people and they think that their judgment is right. The outcome of judgmentalism is a declaration that the judged person does not belong. You don't belong here, you aren't part of us. That's what judgmentalism does. Wherever there's judgmentalism, there's relational separation. Why is this a problem? Why is judgmentalism a problem? First, because it sets ourselves up as the king with authority to judge other people, and it takes on the authority to determine what's right and wrong. Okay, so when we act as the judge, we step into the role of the authoritative arbitrator between right and wrong. Christianity is going to teach us that we don't stand in that role, that's God's role. So judgmentalism is wrong because it's trying to take God's place in the seat of judgment. Second, it's problematic, judgmentalism is problematic because it, trusts it, it crushes true community. So you know this, if you've ever been around really judgmental people, you can't have a relationship with them. They're always going to be judging you. They're always going to be pointing out what's wrong with you. There's relational separation. The reason that judgmentalism can flourish is because it's really easy for you and for me to exclude others from the community of Christians and to exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. 
Okay, do you get that? It's easy for us to exclude other people from what we believe true Christianity is, and it's easy for us to exclude ourselves from identification as a sinner. We'll return to that in a moment. Hypocrisy, on the other hand, is associated with an incongruity between a person's stated belief and how they actually live. Okay, so if you look it up in Webster's Third Dictionary, this is how he puts it. A hypocrite is one who pretends to be what he is not, or to have principles or beliefs that he does not have, especially of one who falsely assumes an appearance of virtue or religion. So hypocrites pretend to have a set of beliefs, and they prescribe a way of living, but they themselves don't follow it. This hypocrisy is not merely a lapse of inconsistency, but a sustained pattern of action that violates a person's stated belief, and it's a consistent practice of posturing as virtuous while participating in vice. Like judgmentalism, hypocrisy kills relationships. It denies the gifts of knowing and being known. It creates a fractured self because we're always pretending to be one thing when we're actually another. We can't let people know us or else they'll find us out. Hypocrisy crushes relationships. Now together, when you bring hypocrisy and judgmentalism together in the same person, it produces an air of superiority. We think we're better than everyone else. We hold them to really high standards, but we ourselves don't live according to those standards. When we're entangled in these sins, we start to think like this guy, Uncle Andrew, in C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. You might remember the scene in this book. After um, Uncle Andrew makes this little girl try on a magic ring and she disappears, he's left alone in the room with his nephew, Diggory. And Diggory is shocked by what just happened and he calls his uncle rotten. And this is how his uncle responds. Rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure, and I'm very glad that you have been taught to do it. But of course, you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No diggory, men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules. I think the way that a lot of people look at Christianity, hear Christians saying something like this. Christians like me who possess true Christianity are freed from the commands of Christ. Everyone else needs to follow those rules, but not me. When you hear those descriptions, do you see yourself in those roles? Have you experienced that kind of hypocrisy and judgmentalism leveraged against you? Well, Paul points these problems out in the church of Rome. He points out in chapter 2, verse 1, that in their judgment, they are without excuse because they are hypocritical. They're judgmental and they're hypocritical. They're vehemently judging the Gentiles and proclaiming that they have to remain outsiders while they themselves are committing the exact same sin. Their purpose in judging was not to restore the Gentiles to God, but to set themselves up as superior to all of the outsiders. And for that reason, Paul says in Romans 2, 1, that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. 
Now, of course, that's not the end of the judgmentalism and hypocrisy problem in the Church of Rome. If you read the rest of the Book of Romans, by the time you get to chapters 14 and 15, you'll realize that there are certain Christians who are exercising a judgmental attitude, not over actual sin, but matters of preference. So some of the Christians are saying, you are judged if you drink wine and eat meat, if you eat anything but vegetables, and if you don't celebrate holy days. And this, this kind of shows us how, the, how judgmentalism works. We make a judgment about an actual sin, and then we step into the place of the judge, and before long, we're setting our own rules and judging other people by them. That's the problem that was happening in the church in Rome. There was an attitude of superiority and judgmentalism and hypocrisy. These things became like a cancer that infiltrated the whole life of the church. These people were replacing God as judge, and they were replacing God as the legislator of right and wrong. Unfortunately, as we're all aware, these problems are not locked up in the first century church. These problems are very much present in Christianity today. And perhaps if we as individuals and we as a church look closely at ourselves, we'll see that we are dealing with those problems too. So if judgmentalism and hypocrisy are common among Christians, um, is there a reason to be a Christian? You know, when I've been listening to these atheists and secularists talk about these issues, the number one things that they say keep them from becoming a Christian is that Christians are hypocritical and judgmental and think they're better than everybody else. So I think it's worth asking, why should we be Christians if this problem has been present from Paul's day all the way to ours? I want to answer that question in a second, but I want to at least explain why some Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. I'm not trying to excuse it. Whenever we see judgmentalism and hypocrisy, there's no excuse for it, none at all. But if we can understand the reasons for it, it might help us um, be better positioned to figure out the solution to it. So why are so many Christians hypocritical and judgmental? First, I'd say some Christians are not really Christian. I think some Christians have co-opted Christianity to create their own standards for life and judgment for other people, and they call it Christianity, but it really, it's their own thing. They're just trying to get people to live in the way that they want them to live. So sometimes you'll encounter Christians who are not really Christians. They've redefined Christianity to be comprised of their own beliefs and opinions and desires, and they require everyone else to conform to them. Some Christians, though, are hypocritical and judgmental because they've been deeply hurt by hypocritical and judgmental Christians, and they've just responded in kind and drawn different lines. Okay, so this is particularly true for Christians who grew up in a more conservative world, in conservative church, and they realize that some of those standards weren't actually biblical. So then they become really judgmental of the Christianity they came from, And without realizing it, they start to be hypocritical and even more judgmental than the place they came from. Okay, I I think that's really, really common. And that's what I hear often in these podcasts that I listen to and as I talk with friends who I grew up with who have left the church. Some Christians have been deeply hurt by judgmentalism and hypocrisy, so they respond in an equal and opposite reaction. Now, some Christians are hypocritical and judgmental simply because they have not fully realized the teachings of the Bible. 
They haven't fully understood how deeply sinful they are and how gracious and loving and kind God is. So, so what I'm trying to say is that there are twin realities that they haven't quite recognized yet. They haven't grasped how sinful they are, so it's really easy to point the finger at other people and call them sinful. It's harder to do that when we see how sinful we are. But on the other hand, they haven't fully tasted of God's mercy yet, so they're hesitant to offer that mercy to other Christians. Fourth, all Christians are still sinners and have not yet fully been transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're not perfect yet. So it's almost just assumed that there will be a measure of hypocrisy and judgmentalism among Christians. Not until Jesus returns will that problem be fully taken care of. So I think I'm not trying to excuse why judgmentalism and hypocrisy are present in the church, but I am trying to explain it so you can at least understand why that's the case. But even with that, you might be asking, why should I stay a Christian if hypocrisy and judgmentalism are so common? Here's my short answer that I want to flesh out in the rest of this sermon. If Christians press more deeply into the teachings of the Bible, and if Christians walk more closely with Jesus, then layer by layer, the attitudes of superiority and judgmentalism and hypocrisy will be stripped away. But if you run away from the Bible and the gospel in Christ and the community of faith, you're separating yourselves from the resources that can actually deal with the problem. So I want to suggest that running away from Christ is not going to provide you any sustainable solution. It's only by getting closer. Christians are judgmental and hypocritical not because they're close to Jesus, but because they haven't gotten as close as they need to be. All right, so... What's the problem? Judgmentalism and hypocrisy. We have to admit it. We have to own up to it. We can't deny it. It's there. Why can't we deny it? Why can't these problems be ignored? Okay, when, when this documentary and often when instances of hypocrisy are exposed in the church, there's a strong reaction to cover it up, to hide it, to ignore the sin that's in the church. But that's not a tenable solution. Why can't the problem be ignored? This is why. Because the day is coming when God will judge sin. A day is coming when God is going to judge sin. So denying it or hiding from it now won't solve the problem. God's future judgment is going to come. And on that day, he's going to kick everyone out of the judge's chair. And he's going to preside over the court. And as Paul says in verse 2, when God judges, he judges according to the truth. He judges according to what's there. The truth is that we are not the judge and God is. The truth is that we sin and that our hypocrisy will be exposed. The truth is that God doesn't play favorites. Because of the coming judgment, we can't ignore the problems of sin and hypocrisy and judgmentalism. I want to show you this a little bit more in the text. So glance down at Romans 2, 3, and 4. There, Paul makes clear that your judgmental attitudes will not save you from God's judgment. Instead, they make you more susceptible to it. So a lifetime of exercising judgment on other people won't vindicate you or spare you from God's judgment. And judgmentalism that's paired with hypocrisy and that is sourced in a hard and unrepented heart actually stores up God's wrath on the day of judgment. 
So I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that by ignoring our sin problems, particularly of hypocrisy and judgmentalism, we aren't getting rid of the problem, we're making it even worse. Our tendency is always to take a shortcut out to find an easy solution, and it always makes the problem worse. It just always does. Second, Paul makes clear that your hypocrisy will be fully exposed. Look at verse 6. Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, says that God will repay each one according to his works. God will repay us according to what we actually do. Now, this text might raise a lot of questions in your mind. You know, you might be thinking, doesn't God judge us according to his grace and not according to what I've done? I, I think that you're asking a good question. And the short answer is that this is not a prescription for salvation. But I don't think that Paul wants us to jump away from this text by citing proof text. Instead, he wants us to lean into this biblical truth that God will judge us according to our works. And what that should do is stop us in our tracks. We should hit pause on some of our theological system questions and just recognize that our sin will not be hidden from God. It's not hidden from God now, and it won't be hidden on the final day of judgment. If what goes around comes around is true, then we know that what we keep doing will always reap the reward of judgment, will be repaid with something bad according to our works. In trying harder to solve the problem on our own and continuing in judgmentalism and hypocrisy will make that problem worse. That's why we have to pause and just let that first sink in, that you will be judged according to your works. You'll be repaid according to your works. You've got to let that sink in because it ought to produce a note of hopelessness in your life. What it should do is say then, if I'm going to be judged according to my works and I look at myself honestly, I am so sinful that I could never pass God's judgment according to my works. I need a solution from the outside. Hang on to that notion. Third, at God's judgment, your sense of superiority will be rejected. Look at verse 11. Paul says that there is no favoritism with God. You might walk around feeling like you're God's favorite. Um, You might walk around feeling like you should be everybody else's favorite and that they should do whatever you want because you're the favorite. You're the best. You might believe that everyone else owes you and that you owe nothing to anyone else. You might believe that God owes you because you did everything right. You might say that you voted the right way and you had the right television standards, and you picked a godly education for your children, or you were born into the right family, or you belong to a right church denomination, so therefore you're in God's good graces. You're his favorite. Don't a lot of us walk around like that, as if we're God's favorite, so he'll overlook all of our problems? Well, Paul makes it clear that when God rules as the judge, he won't play favorites. And whatever sense of superiority that you have will do nothing to contribute to a favorable ruling on the judgment day. So what I'm trying to say here is we can't ignore the problem because God's judgment is coming on sin and none of us can be the solution to that problem. None of us can escape that judgment. Now, the upshot of these points that I'm trying to make is that we can see really clearly that we're all sinners. 
If when you're hearing these things, you're thinking of names of other people instead of yourself, then you're guilty of the exact thing we're talking about right now. This text is intended to cause us to reflect on our own lives and see the sin and judgmentalism in ourselves. And when we can see that we are sinful, just as everybody else is, we're standing on even ground. Now, the atheists and and the non-Christians that I listen to say that uh, the doctrine of sin is actually what creates superiority in Christians, but that's only people misunderstand the doctrine of sin. If people say everyone else is a sinner and I'm not, that does create superiority and judgmentalism. But if we hear this text as Paul intends us to, which is to look at ourselves and say, I am a sinner, to count ourselves among the sinner, then it's actually the basis for a radical equality and a stifling of judgmentalism. We can't look at anyone else and say, I'm better than you. This is what Shakespeare gets at when um, he talks about a courtroom scene um, through one of his characters. He says, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. When we stand before God's judgment throne, on our own, we have nothing to offer that would bring us salvation. So he goes on and says this, when we're before the throne, this is what we do, we pray for mercy. When we pray for mercy, in that same prayer, doth, then that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. What he's trying to say is if you actually see yourself rightly and you stand before God's judgment throne, you have nothing to appeal to other than God's mercy. And your prayer for mercy for yourself teaches you to render deeds of mercy or to adopt an attitude of mercy and grace and kindness and understanding to other people. It eliminates judgmentalism because you know that you wouldn't pass the judgment yourself. I want to suggest that before we can even consider the solution to the problem, if you won't even be able to understand the solution to the problem unless you're first ready to admit that I am the problem, that I'm a sinner, if you're still looking at other people as a problem, if you're still looking at your environment or your upbringing or anything else as the biggest problem in your life and not the sin in your own heart, you won't be able to grasp the solution. So the prerequisite to the solution is to admit that you are a sinner in need of the mercy of God. So then what's the solution to the problem? Here I'm drawing from verses 12 through 16. And in these verses, Paul doesn't give us a propositional solution, like take this step and that step, and then you'll be fixed. Instead, he gives us an example. And this example is a little bit hard to understand. Um, And there are a lot of interpretive decisions that I'm just not going to get into here. But if you notice them and have questions about them, I'll be in the back afterwards, and I'd be happy to talk about this more. But basically, in these verses, Paul is saying this. You judgy Christians who are saying that because you have the Old Testament law, you're better than everybody else and your problem is fixed and God's going to excuse you. That's not true because you keep violating that law. Just having God's word doesn't fix your problem. Just calling yourself one of God's people doesn't solve the problem. You need something more. You need something different. So he gives an example of Gentiles, people who did not grow up in the nation of Israel or part of God's people who didn't have God's word. He says that there are Gentiles who, even though by birth or by nature, they don't have God's law. They weren't born into a Christian family, to use our terminology. 
even though they weren't privileged by having God's word, they live in a way as if they did have God's word. He's trying to say there are all these people who didn't grow up as part of Israel, and somehow, almost miraculously, they're living as if they have God's word. And this is why. Look at verse 14. So when Gentiles who do not by nature or by birth have the law, do what the law demands, they are law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is the solution that Paul is prescribing. He's trying to say that you, you, it's not something from the outside that's going to fix your problem. You need a change from the inside out. You need God to write his law on your heart, on your inner person. And you need to be transformed from the inside out. What Paul is doing here is he's referencing a text in the Old Testament. And it would be easy to overlook this, but he's actually referencing a text in Jeremiah 31, where the prophet Jeremiah points out that the Mosaic law and the Old Covenant are not cutting it. You know, these, the commands of the law are not transforming people. So Jeremiah prophesied that God would eventually enact a new covenant. And at this time, he would do something new and surprising. And this is what it is. This is from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. God said, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Okay, hang, hang with me for two minutes as I explain this. What Paul is trying to say is that God is doing a work in people's lives through Jesus giving the Holy Spirit that solves three problems. Here are the three aspects. First, God's teaching will now be instilled inside of people. The old covenant, legalism, the law is now obsolete. And this cuts out that hypocrisy question. It cuts out the formation of a law and then laws to make sure you don't break the law and even more laws to make sure you don't break those laws to make sure you don't break the law. Now, there will be an inner teaching of the Holy Spirit that makes us alive so that we can embody the kind of life that the law was trying to create anyway. The giving of the Holy Spirit will make this happen. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't make people perfect in a moment, but it does give, the Holy Spirit does give imperfect people direction and strength and conviction of sin. This is what Paul is getting at later in Romans 8, 26, when he says that God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because even when we have the teaching of God in our hearts, sometimes we don't know how we should pray or how we should live, and we often stumble and fail. So God gives us the Holy Spirit to instruct and intercede and to guide. So that's one aspect of the solution, that God will give his spirit to change our hearts. Two, God will make himself known to all people, from the least to the greatest. This cuts out the superiority problem. God didn't make himself known just to people like you, with your preferences and interests and economic situation or upbringing. Instead, God makes himself known to all people, from the least to the greatest. Didn't Jesus show us this? He, he connected with the poor and the marginalized and the overlooked. He didn't teach his followers to gain superiority and power or to stand in judgment over others. He didn't teach them to point the finger and condemn other people. Instead, 
He taught his follower to become, followers to become servants and slaves, preaching the kingdom of God and declaring the way of forgiveness in Jesus. So the hypocrisy problem is solved here, the superiority problem is solved here, and the judgmentalism problem is solved here as well. Because God will forgive iniquity and sin and remember it no more. Christianity creates the kind of people who worship a God who delights in forgiving sin and iniquity and remembering it no more. What do judgmental people do? They look for sin so that they can remember it and leverage it as charges against other people. But God is doing something so that he'll never again remember sin. God forgives our iniquity. How? He does it through the sacrificial death of Jesus for sinners. That's That's the kind of um, message that we have in the Bible. Not one that creates us into judgmental people, but a message that shows us how sinful we are, but how forgiving God is. Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension deals with this sin problem so that God can forgive our sin and remember iniquity no more. He doesn't leverage it against us. And in fact, I want to suggest that this is how you will be able to pass that judgment according to your works that Paul talks about in Romans 2. It will be because God will give you a new heart that will cause you to live in a different way. And because Jesus paid for your sin. So at that judgment seat, God will remember your sin and iniquity no more. The solution to the religious problem is this new covenant act of God that can come only through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've seen the problem. We've realized we can't ignore the problem. We've talked about the solution to the problem. But that solution is no good if we can't access it. That solution is no good if you don't access it. So we have to ask, how can I access that solution? Paul hints at this in two ways. In Romans 2.16, he alludes to the gospel through Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 2.3, he makes a reference to repentance. And I want to suggest that these two references show us how we can access the solution to the problem. First, Paul alludes to my gospel through Christ Jesus in verse 16. Now, if you've been with us in previous weeks, I pointed out Paul's summary of the gospel in Romans 1, 1 through 4. This is his gospel summary. The gospel is the royal announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus is the king. We have to have this peace. It's very relevant for this reason. If Jesus is the king, then you're not. If Jesus is a king, then you're not. So part of the way we access the solution is by resigning our pretend kingship and letting Jesus rule instead. Rule over us and rule over other people. If Jesus is king, then he is the only one who has authority to arbitrate between right and wrong and to dictate how people should live. You don't have that right. You have to give up that right and hand it to Jesus. More than that, um, if Jesus is God's representative king, then we have to redirect our lives. It's not that just in one moment we say, I'm, I'm done exercising judgment on other people, but we also have to move to submit ourselves to Jesus and to follow him. So D- Jesus' kingship has way more implications than that, 
But I think when it comes to the problems of judgmentalism and hypocrisy, the biggest thing that it shows us is that we're not the king, and instead we need to submit to King Jesus. So the way we access the solution is giving up on our own rule and receiving the rule of Christ. Second, Paul talks about repentance. This is a term that maybe we don't hear all of that often, but in Romans 2, 4, he's told them that God has not struck you down. God's withheld his judgment on you to that final day for this reason. He showed you kindness and restraint and patience for this reason, to lead you to repentance. So what does that mean? Repentance just basically means to turn around. Uh, To repent is to turn to change your direction. It gives you this image of walking in one direction and making a 180 and walking the other direction. Um, Included in that picture of repentance is not just a one-time look over your shoulder, but a complete turn and movement in the opposite direction. So sometimes I'm afraid when Christians talk about repentance, they talk about it as if you can just utter a quick I'm sorry and then everything's taken care of without understanding that it actually includes a whole way of life. Repentance is not just for conversion, it's for all of life. And we need it for all of life because if you're like me, you're going to sin time and time again. You're going to have to keep turning around. It's like there's this magnet that keeps drawing us back to our own self-rule in our judgmentalism and hypocrisy. And it's only by turning around back to Jesus that the problem can be solved. This is why, in other places, Paul talks about responding to the gospel with the obedience of faith. That's in Romans 1, 7. Or in Romans 10, 16, he says that people need to obey the gospel. It's because repentance isn't just a word that you say, but it's a lifestyle that you adopt. It's through recognizing the kingship of Jesus and turning from your own self-rule to walk in the ways of Jesus that you can access the solution to the problem. And that's the only way. It's not by ignoring the problem of sin. It's not by running away from Christ in the church. It's not by participating even more in it. It's by turning from your sin and yourself to look at Jesus alone. So as we've gone through this, I would suspect that some of you the entire time have resisted seeing these problems in your own life and you only want to point finger at other people. You don't want to see it. To you, I want to say, you're you're going to be captivated by the prison of judgmentalism and hypocrisy, whether it's someone else's or yours the rest of your life, unless you're willing to point the finger at yourself. So maybe what God wants from you today is simply for you to deeply reflect and admit that you are a sinner in need of a savior, that you are in need of Jesus to solve the problem and doing what you've been doing won't fix it. And I think if you, if you get honest, you'll have to admit that because it's just probably not working for you. Maybe you've identified as a Christian for a long time, but you've started to coast into a lifestyle of self-rule of judgmentalism and hypocrisy. I think God wants the same for you, to see your own sinfulness and to turn to Jesus once again. You know, we sometimes construct our um, process of salvation when we think about our first moment of conversion. Well, really, the, the whole life of a Christian is a bunch of mini-conversions all the way along. 
Martin Luther talked about the, the doorway to God being through the gate of repentance, and he followed it up by saying all of life is repentance. So will you commit with me as individuals and as a church to live a life of repentance, seeking to access the solution to our sin problem by coming to Jesus alone and depending on him? Let's pray. Let's come to Jesus as we are, but let's allow him to change us as we press forward towards him. God, we ask that you would cause us to repent and that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We ask that we would give up on our own self-righteousness, that we would detect our hypocrisy, and instead of standing on the throne as the judge, that we would recognize that we will face you someday and we will be judged according to our works without partiality and that apart from Christ, we will find ourselves guilty. Would you convict us and reveal to us our sin, but even more so, would you reveal to us the glory of our King and Savior, Jesus? And would you cause us to run to him, not letting anything hold us back? And would you transform us more and more into the image of your Son by your Spirit? It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.